0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Early Modern History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Elspeth Curry, your host today on the channel. This afternoon, we'll be talking to Dr. Joy Wiltenberg about her new book, Laughing Histories, From the Renaissance Man to the Woman of Wit, a fascinating investigation of how laughter was inflected by gender and social power in early modern Europe. Joy, welcome to the show.
0: Thanks so much. I'm really happy to be here.
1: Yeah, lovely to talk with you. Uh, I'm so excited to get into your book, but before we do so, could you get us started by just telling us a bit about your own history?
0: Well, I'll just tell you a little about my background. I started out studying early modern social history at University of Virginia, where I was able to study with the wonderful Eric Middlefort, who encouraged his students to be adventurous, which was great. And I. this was also at a time when the so-called cultural turn was just about to happen. And I was very interested in literature as well as history so that Um, kind of started me off on the kinds of historical subjects that I've been interested in studying. So I started out with uh, popular literature and images of women and then early crime sensationalism. Those are my earlier main projects. And then the crime sensationalism one led me into thinking about history of emotions more, which is another growing field. And um, very much related to this study of laughter.
1: So how exactly did you get into studying laughter in the early modern world? What what kind of sparked uh, sparked your interest and that led to you writing a book on it?
0: Yes, thanks. Well, that, this actually goes back pretty early in my studies, too. I read um, Mikhail Bakhtin in grad school. Um, with his analysis of Carnival and his argument about a uh, kind of popular laughter, having a lot of symbolic power to overturn the established order, at least temporarily. And then I also read some of those early studies by um, people like Robert Darnton, looking at the great cat massacre again, where laughter was something that needed some analysis and was trying was exercising some social power in ways that are not always recognized by kind of standard historical study. So I was really interested in popular culture, but I really felt there was um, an untold story about broader laughter in social interaction and how people are using it in different kinds of of social relationships, power relationships across gender, across class and i also had been reading jane austen since i like to read literature as well and her uses of laughter and humor struck me as something that raised some questions too with her um especially her character elizabeth bennett who you know is genteel but not quite as high status as um the man who winds up being her lover and she's a lover of laughter, but the kind of higher elites seem to be kind of looking down their noses at that and being um trying to be more austere. So I wanted to look at what was actually happening there.
1: Fascinating. So you'd say that you're you're more interested in uh laughter as it happened perhaps than why people laughed, maybe is that a fair way to put it?
0: Absolutely. And um we can i don't want to get too much into laughter theories but people always when they approach laughter and they're trying to analyze it they they tend to ask this question well why do we laugh what are we laughing at and um, i think i put it in the book that i want to know what people are laughing for they're laughing in a certain social context and with certain other people and so it's not just that they're laughing at some abstract bit of funniness, they're laughing, you know, in a context that needs to be understood. And the laughter has different meanings, depending on what that context is, it needs to be read in that light.
1: So along those lines, uh, I, as you spoke, I was reminded of the quote you have in your introduction that laughing is easy to do, not always so easy to understand. Uh, So that I'm sure is true even when you're in a situation with laughter, but as modern audiences looking back at historical laughter, what do you think are some of the biggest hindrances or obstacles in our way?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think that we probably, as modern people going back to look at this historically, we know we're not always gonna get the joke And that you know that is something that Darnton explored a lot. But what I think is the biggest hindrance is that we tend to assume that things that we experience every day, like laughter, um, that seems so easy, are going to be natural and kind of universal and unchanging. And so, the idea that that laughter itself is going to play some different kinds of social roles in different contexts and that people are going to use and interpret it differently in different historical contexts, I think is more foreign to people. I actually see this in some of the modern um, kind of social science studies of laughter too. There's a tendency to, you know, maybe study a group of college students or go study conversations in bars and then start drawing conclusions about gender or about um, the workings of laughter um, without, I think, putting them as specifically in that particular social context. That's a particular um, cultural group that is going to do some things of its own that aren't necessarily generalizable, even in modern times, let alone back into history.
1: So you begin your book with looking at laughter's relationship to power in the early modern world. Could you give us some of the historiographical background on this topic and you touched on it briefly earlier uh, with uh,
0: Bakhtin and
1: I was wondering how your study of lived laughter uh, kind of complicates perhaps some of these thoughts.
0: Yeah, you know, I should say I loved Bakhtin. He's he, you know so um, kind of engaging and interesting um and I think a lot of um, historians are familiar with his idea about this power of popular laughter and kind of the overturning of of hierarchies and, you know, kind of um, carnival reversal of standard meanings with an implic and especially uh, his idea about um, kind of the grotesque body and laughter based on The body and its kind of messy functions being something that is somehow liberating because it brings everybody down to that same basic physical level of human existence that is, you know, it's got um, elimination and birth and death and, uh, you know, putrefaction and other things happening to the body. Um, And as I say, I found that really interesting, but I've seen also some tendency to take that idea about body-based laughter, like, you know, fart jokes and things like that, and assume that there's something essentially liberating about that. And um, I did find some evidence that to me raises some questions about that, because you find um, laughter about defecation being used to kind of demean the lower classes coming from the high elites as well. So um, I think there's real questions about the liberating aspect. And then of course, some of those popular practices that historians studied, you know, some of these are classics from back in the seventies and eighties of social history, studying carnivals, studying um, popular um. Uh, Rough music, sharivari, um, you know, popular shaming rituals or popular jesting over people's um, violations of some social rules. But those practices, you know, they're they're full of laughter and ridicule, but they are very coercive uh, um, toward the people that they're being um, directed against. They're, you know, they're coming from non-official sources. So in that sense, they're popular, but liberating, I would say not so much. And especially for women, since so many of those um, popular shaming rituals are directed against people's um, sexual violations, um, a lot of them fall on women who are thought to be sexually loose. And so um, not, not in favor of freedom for them.
1: So power and liberation are not necessarily connected um, and also power and humor are not necessarily opposed. Uh, You write that, quote, laughter is not the opposite of serious matters, power, rebellion, rule, negotiation, social control and violence. Um, So what are some examples that you could give our readers that demonstrate laughter's compatibility with such concerns in the 16th to 18th century?
0: Yes. Yes. Well, I guess some of these examples we've talked about are related to that uh, in terms of, you know, popular rebellion that might use, you know, these uh, comic tropes um, against um, the higher ups. But there's very much a lot of royals and courtiers using laughter for their own particular uh, own political purposes. Um, uh, Kings used it strategically. Um, probably Henry II of England is the most famous early example of that. But I also found some fascinating ruling women using jokes to kind of deflect things they didn't want to talk about. Um, Elizabeth I with those marriages that she didn't want to get into, she had these uh, amazing jokes about them, you know, joking about marrying the Pope and stuff like that. And um, also Margaret of Austria, who's less well known, was constantly joking and using that in her diplomacy. And people recognized that she was, you know, a kind of uh, cheery, laughing person and uh, but also very effective at, at her political maneuvering.
1: So uh, as you talked about this one minute, it just reminded me one of the things I really enjoyed about your book was this focus on individuals and the way that uh, you really uh, structured it in many ways as a case studies of certain individuals. Um, And Benvenuto Cellini is one of the important figures in your book who you focus on. So could you tell us a bit about him and particularly how he illustrates
0: aggressive laughter in the early modern world? Yes, and, and I should say um, Cellini was kind of a turning point for me in trying to figure out how to organize this book, because one of the other problems with approaching laughter historically is it's got no shape to it. It's kind of everywhere and uh, very hard to pin down, very slippery, and um My first thought about how to organize this, I thought, okay, I'll think about places where laughter took place. I'll think about the court, um, you know, kind of the convivial table, the tavern, the street. But the kind of evidence of laughter that I could find was so individual and so kind of scattered that it, it really didn't lend itself well to my original idea. When I read Cellini, yeah, you know, I had looked I had known about him before because you know he's uh, a well-known autobiography of the early modern period but when I looked at him before I had not been thinking about laughter when I looked at him with an idle laughter I found wow he's got tons of laughter in here but it's a particular type of laughter as you say this aggressive laughter laughing at his enemies laughing at the people who arrest him and Pull him into court, um, laughing at um, at rivals who he he thinks are not as good artists as he is. Um, and then, uh, conversely, he's responding to laughter against him, uh, viewing it as an insult. He actually goes and kills a guy who laughs at him in the street because uh, it's cons- he finds it an insult. This guy was an enemy of his anyway, but. It's a um, it's a dynamic of laughter that for me h- helped me understand some of the negativity about laughter that you find not just in early modern sources, but going back um, a long way into the Western tradition. Um, there's a lot of suspicion of laughter. Maybe it's going to be this nasty ridicule. Maybe it's going to be aggressive. Maybe um the ungodly are gonna be mockers of Jesus, right? Or, or uh, people are gonna make fun of religion and not not take it as seriously as they should. So he really helped, you know, um, in a lot of ways, he is not an admirable figure, despite the fact that he was a wonderful artist. Um, uh, socially, he, he was, you know, quite uh, um, arrogant and aggressive. Um, And especially abusive toward women. But he really helped me think about laughter, especially in contrast with Felix Platter, the the kind of um, tension between the types of laughter that are illustrated by these two near contemporaries uh, also helped me think about, you know, bad laughter, good laughter, um, different functions of laughter and how one could explore that through individual cases.
1: So to to talk about Platter a little bit, could you tell us about him? So he is a contemporary with Cellini, but he laughs very differently. Uh, so how how is he different socially and uh, how does he laugh differently than Cellini as well?
0: Yeah, yeah. He was uh, a Swiss physician from a family that... Uh, had a very striking social rise, that and also wrote a lot of autobiographies, so we know uh, a lot about their experiences. His father had been um, dirt poor, uh, but became a human, uh, you know, became a bookish and a humanist, and um, so raised his son and was able to send him to medical school. Um, and the kind of laughter that he has might be laughter that would seem more familiar to most of our everyday experience than the kind of thing you see in Cellini. He laughs with his friends. He laughs with his future wife. Um, he, he just has a lot of kind of social bonding laughter. You laugh, um, in ways that kind of ease your anxiety into new relationships. He even, he was a, um, a Protestant in, uh, in Basel, and um, he even had some friendly, joking relationships with the abbess of a nearby um, uh, convent, uh, trading jokes kind of across the religious barrier. So uh, very, very different from Cellini.
1: And a final question on Cellini before kind of shifting to talk more about Platter. Uh, would you say that aggressive laughter is the same as mocking laughter or are they, would you distinguish between the two? Does Cellini help see uh, or show us the difference between aggressive laughter and mocking laughter?
0: That's an interesting question. Um, Cellini's laughter is not even mostly directed toward things that are funny. You know, when I think of and so I guess that's related to mockery, although mockery, you, I guess, need to try to find something that you claim is funny about what you're laughing at. Um, Cellini was able to kind of laugh for the sake of saying, look at me, I am just full of confidence and I don't care anything about what you think you can do to me. Um, so it's not even necessarily mocking, it's sort of self-aggrandizing laughter.
1: So more almost. focused on himself than the whatever the subject happens to be.
0: That's that's right. That's right. right.
1: Thank you. Um so yes, on to Platter. Uh as you mentioned, he was a doctor. Uh so how did you find um I guess with him or just in general, early modern theories of the body and health intersecting with early modern discussions of laughter. Cause you did mention that there is some ambiguity in this era, you know, is, is laughter good? Is it bad? Should we avoid it? Um, and, and how, yeah, how does medicine or medicinal theories uh, kind of
0: come into play with this? Yes. Yes. Um, the doctors were worth. I think some of the most likely people to be pro-laughter. They they thought, oh yeah, cheer cheer up the patient. Uh, laughter is mostly good for you. They said, oh yeah, you should avoid absolute excess, but but they really um, basically thought it was um, it was going to be uh, encouraging your good humors and that sort of sort of thing. I was especially happy to find. Um, And this was something I hadn't known would be the case, but um, a whole bunch of people who were um, who were. Happy laughers and famous laughers studied at the medical school at Montpellier, which is where Platter studied. It's also where Francois Rabelais studied, and he's one of the most famous laughers of all time because of his um, his literary laughter and also the study of him by Bactine. But... Also at Montpellier was uh, Laurent Joubert, who wrote um, a major treatise about laughter, the most widely read treatise on laughter of the early modern period. And also this more obscure guy named Andrew Board, who who, um, supposedly authored some joke books. So I thought it was fascinating that uh, Montpellier was sort of a laughter hotbed. Um, where doctors all you know kind of cultivated laughter as something that was good for you
1: so doctors leading the charge in the <laughs> perhaps i don't know rehabilitation, but the promotion <laughs> of laughter in this era
0: yes, yes,
1: so one of the strengths of your book is how you just continue to focus on gender and class and how those two aspects can nuance early modern instances of laughter. So to focus a little bit on gender, what were some of the particular difficulties or opportunities that laughter presented women in this era?
0: Yes, that's a good question, too. Um, A lot of people, especially men who were commenting on such things, they thought women laughed too much. They also thought they talked too much, but they thought the excess laughter was something that showed their weakness and kind of put them in the same category as children, you know, who just kind of laugh up uh, too much. Um, but women were able to kind of use laughter for their own purposes by making fun of some silly gender stereotypes. I found some women making fun of the idea that women talk too much um, or, um, I enjoyed the way Dorothy Osborne who was a 17th, 17th century gentlewoman she had a, a whole string of suitors uh, coming to um seek her hand and she rejected them all cuz she was in love with a man she was writing letters to but she made fun of their kind of pompous vaunting of male authority and male learning you know they wrote letters and kind of this Uh, Latinate style that she found really stupid. And I thought made a terrible letter. So she was able to, uh, you know, kind of um, live within some of that gender hierarchy by just kind of laughing off some of the ways in which men thought they were superior. On the other hand, she was really horrified at the idea of being laughed at. And so ridicule was something that she, and also one finds some other women talking about this too, that um, they really fear being made a laughing stock. And of course, nobody likes to be laughed at and men might've worried about this too, but it was something that for women kept them um, more likely to adhere to certain kinds of gender rules than otherwise.
1: So to continue in this vein, uh, what were laughter's sexual connotations? Uh, Because I know that's so important as we consider particularly how women in the early modern world understood uh, their place in society or tried to navigate things. So um, yeah, what were the sexual connotations and how did gender in particular impact these?
0: Yes, yes. Well, there certainly were uh, moralists who said That a woman who laughs, especially if she kind of laughs in certain ways, is showing herself to be sexually loose. And there are kind of two aspects to that. One is um, they thought that if a woman laughs in response to a young man, someone who's not her, she's not married and someone who's not her husband, she's laughing with somebody, that's kind of suspect. Or a woman who laughs with an open mouth or laughs too audibly is somebody who you may think is going to be sexually loose. One of the things I loved about the cover image that I found for this book is that it shows a woman laughing with her mouth open. And it's no accident that that's happening in a scene that's pretty clearly a high-class brothel where some sexually suspect stuff is going on. That's where you picture and portray the woman laughing with the open mouth. Then there are also some parallels people perceived between the physical effects of laughter on the body, you know, this kind of uh, you know rhythmic eruptions of the laughter and kind of loss of physical control reminded people of sexuality. And some it explicitly compared laughter to, you know, sexual um, orgasm and and thought, well, you have to be careful about this.
1: So uh, to continue talking about women, at least, uh, but shifting the topic a little bit, uh, you also focus on uh, Madame de Sévigné, who was French uh as one of your case studies. And you talk about her uh, in the context of kind of theories around early modern Europe and this increased requirement for gentility and civility and humor among the elite in particular. So how does uh, Madame de Sevene either illustrate or challenge these sorts of theories?
0: Yes, thanks. Um, Yes, she was um, an interesting character. Everybody loved her. I couldn't find anybody who didn't like Madame de Sévigné, Um, and so in the kinds. But she also she was a big celebrator of laughter. Um, It's not clear how much she was talking about laughing out loud because the language is a little bit ambiguous about that. But she definitely thought you should enjoy yourself and you should, you know, feel free to. To ridicule things you thought were ridiculous, and also, um, you know, enjoy uh, convivial times with your friends. Um, She did embody that gentility and civility and and kind of an idea of um, sophistication in what you were laughing at. She wanted you to be actually witty, you know, not uh, wanted it to be something clever. Um, And so she would draw distinctions between people who know how to laugh and appreciate the right kind of laughter and people who frustrate you to death because you're full of this urge to laugh and they don't get the joke. They don't understand. They're just, you know, they're not smart enough Um, as, they're not, you know, kind of equal to you. But she was genteel in that she did not do the kind of laughing in people's faces, nothing like Cellini, and not even like some of her contemporaries at the French court who were engaging in some very kind of cruel and exclusive laughter. She was able to laugh at people and still say stay friends with them. She, she would laugh kind of in her letters, or she'd laugh um, when they weren't there, maybe, um but she was kind of more gentle than a lot of the other um aristocrats at the french court
1: yeah i was fascinated by uh some of the descriptions of uh the the french court at the very end right before the revolution just how uh yeah how mocking and cruel it seems like it could have been um but she was separate from that uh both i guess physically uh, far away from court most of the time, and had a different attitude towards it in general
0: yeah, 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 so she could find someone ridiculous, but still um you know still talk to them, still consider them part of the of her social circle. Mm-hmm.
1: So, on the rather different uh, social class than Madame de Sévigné, you also discuss Samuel Pepys uh, with his famous diary and uh, his many instances of uh, laughing and being merry. So, how does his laughter illustrate, uh, particularly, the way that social hierarchy uh, can be navigated uh, with humor?
0: Yeah, he was really amazing. He was able to laugh with everybody. He laughed in and he, of course, because we know about it because it was important enough to him that he wrote into his diary how much laughing he'd been doing um, with all different sorts of people um, from the boatmen who took him from place to place along the Thames to his family and servants to... Um, his superiors at work, his superiors um, in uh, his patrons um, who were helping him get ahead. Um, But he was always very aware of where he stood in the pecking order and whether it was okay to joke in a certain way with a certain kind of person. He got into a little trouble a couple of times when he tried to make a joke that. people thought went over the line, but usually it, you, over a status line, but usually he was, you know, in merry relations with a lot of different people and was clearly skilled at that and and used it as one of his ways of, of kind of oiling his social relationships.
1: Yeah. Are there any examples of, uh, I mean, I guess it's all coming from his own writing, but any examples of where laughter had a positive effect on his ability to advance or uh, achieve his goals.
0: well, I think um he, actually one thing I'll say is um well, he's a very different laughter from ch from Cellini um but he he doesn't tell us jokes, and that is true of a lot of these um sources about these moments of laughter that I've been studying he doesn't tell us with a couple of exceptions he doesn't tell us what he d- did to make people laugh or what he exactly he was laughing at for him it was more about um you're laughing together and that uh, creates a um a, a a scene of of camaraderie um one example that occurs to me is at the workplace, where he was, um, at the time, he had just been appointed to a very responsible position at the naval Navy office that um, raised his social status considerably and allowed him to um, to have a better house and to buy better clothes. He talks about that, too, and move up in the world a bit. But you know, some of his superiors there were not as educated. They were people who had come up through the Navy um, by, you know, being actually on ships and, and doing uh, naval battles. And so he liked to make fun with his fellow educated clerks within the Navy office um, to make fun of the kind of uh, less literate guys who were above them and I think for him that very much reinforced his sense that he's a super competent person and he knows how to do this and he can kind of chuckle at these people even though they're above him not in their face but in their absence and uh, kind of um, move forward his own agenda at work in that way I'm not sure if that answers your question.
1: No, yeah, that's yeah. a that's a great example. Um, it reminds me, I guess, a little bit of uh, Platter, like you were saying, some of that social bonding, um, perhaps, of trying to to get that camaraderie with people who were similar to him in their background, uh, at work at
0: least. Right, right.
1: Um, so your closing case study is of Hester Thrale and her friends, uh, and I found this example fascinating. I'd never heard of it. It's such a, I guess, modern thing. So you introduce the reader to her rating system for her male peers where she she rates all these men she knows in various categories uh which yeah in the 18th century is uh, is kind of wild to come across i um,
0: know this was an amazing thing to me and you know i'm Normal. My my kind of home base has been the 16th century and the 7 into the kind of middle of the 17th. So I'm not really a scholar of the 18th century. So I asked every scholar of the 18th century that I knew, "Have you seen anybody else doing?" She put it in tabular form. There's a you know a table with all these numbers and the different social characteristics of these people and where they where they rate. Um, I thought it was quite remarkable that she was doing that.
1: Yeah, she does use a 20-point system, which is a little different than our, our usual 10. <laughs> yes, uh, yes, and, yes, uh, yes, <laughs> very she, <laughs>
0: that's right. She borrowed the 20 points from a book on beauty that was talking about, how you know, oh, you, gotcha. you could rate beauty at, you know, the be- best beauty at 20. But that book didn't... Have anything like a table and it and didn't do anything like you know taking specific uh, women of of his acquaintance and, and and rating them so she took this idea from reading that you could rate women on a scale of twenty in beauty and and ran with it into a much more elaborate um, kind of uh, enumeration of people's social performance.
1: Yeah, so the, the last three categories for her male peers, at least, were, quote, wit, humor, and good humor. Um, so you, you tell us that these meanings, these terms were fluid, uh, and uh, certainly today we might maybe have a hard time distinguishing them. So what did Thrale mean by wit, humor, and good humor? And what does this sort of tell us about how views of humor and laughter were changing towards the end of this early modern period?
0: Yes, yes, it's really interesting to try to follow the the permutations of these terms. It's pretty clear that uh, even for Thrale herself, their meaning was not 100% clear because she puts a little a little footnote about good humor to try to explain what she means by that and she says, "Oh, I just mean the good humor that you meet need for conversation. And she appears to have meant, you know, some kind of cheerfulness or um openness to other people. Interesting though, she, she was a famously a great friend of um Samuel Johnson, the kind of pundit and and author. And um She gives him a zero on good humor, even though she's having conversation with him all the time. So, uh, you know, he I think it has to do with cheerfulness and maybe being nice to people a little bit. Good humor. Um, Wit and humor. And by the way, uh, as you say, they're the last category. She clearly thought they were really related to each other because she kind of squeezes them all into a final column, even though she. Rated them separately with different numbers, so they're distinct, but they're all kind of part of the same constellation of, um, you know, sociability that that you want to have. Um, She finds them, you know, different but linked. A lot of um, kind of pedantic theorists were trying to distinguish wit and humor and tell you that wit really does not have to do with laughter so much because it's really about cleverness and um and uh, inventiveness in in connecting disparate things with each other and then they also wanted to say well humor is um is really only about um you know personal quirks of the of the person and this is going back to the humoral theory of, you know, how your bodily humor is determined what kind of personality and characteristics you're going to have. And so the the pedantic people said, the only reason you would laugh about humor is you're laughing at somebody because they have some kind of uh, foolish or ridiculous characteristic. (laughs) Um, So, for them, humor is not something to admire um, but wit is uh, but they're they're very uh, kind of difficult to tease out in this in this period. anyway, Thrale does seem to have had some of that idea about um, valuing wit more than you value humor and good humor, but she still kind of thought. I guess you really ought to have all of them in order to be a fully rounded person,
1: I did laugh though um, I guess they're like no none of her male friends actually did have all three in high numbers though correct that's
0: right or that's one right. Of, them of the of the forty something that she ranked her that's right, that's right. She had this one friend who was great at all of them, but he was the only one, yeah. Um, a lot of those people who were who were witty did not have the good humor, so I guess they were they were you know poking fun at people, but not being nice. Um, yeah,
1: yeah. So I I mean I look at the system and it seems so personal, right? She's really, uh, ranking people she knows, but uh, I was fascinated at how you uh, placed this within an increased commercialization of laughter in uh, particularly the 18th century, but something that had started earlier as well. So could you tell us a little bit about the connection between trail system um, and this increased commercialization?
0: Yes, yes. Well, I think that that whole idea of rating people on a numerical scale is part of that saying how, how much are you worth? Um, how can we value th- these characteristics that you have and compare them with others, so you could see uh, increased commercialization generally as, as contributing to that, and then there also was this tendency, especially among the literate literary circles in which Thrale was an active participant, to kind of look for collectible, repeatable anecdotes, um, witty things that people said, um, something funny and entertaining that you can extract from its social context there and and retail out to the world and people were doing this they were she collected up a lot of sayings of samuel johnson and his biographer boswell was doing that um and her friend arthur murphy who was so good at the wit humor and good humor was uh, very much a uh, um an active seller of comedy on the stage, um, so some of this was, you know, there's potential material for um, it, for exchange that you're going to be able to draw out of these social relationships and and take further. Mm-hmm.
1: So uh, on this line, you are careful to note that there are histories, not a history, of laughter in this era but I wonder if you could uh, speak more about some of these general trends that you've noticed in your research. So increased commercialization is one, uh, but are there other larger movements
0: with laughter between the 16th and 18th century? Um, Yes. Well, something that I think some other historians have noted is the turn in some 18th century thinkers toward a more positive valuation of laughter. Um, The idea um, that, that instead of being hostile and mockery, that it's going to be, you know, that social glue. It's going to um, be benevolent. It's going to, um, you know, make your social life more pleasant. Um, some of the 18th century theorists even had some good things to say for ridicule, as long as it was a little gentle. It might kind of gently, um, you know, take you out of doing something silly and move you back into the right direction so that growing positivity about laughter certainly there Um, there certainly also is a trend among elites away from physical humor and toward at least thinking of themselves as witty or or wanting to claim that they appreciate um good wit Um, and i also um i also see some shift in thinking about gender and laughter um, and that is something that kind of moves beyond the 18th century into the 19th century and into what I think are some new modern stereotypes about, about gender. Um, yeah. I found
1: and, those, and uh, those closing comments of yours on this very topic uh, so interesting, just uh, how early modern world and gender and laughter can sort of sh- shock us, hopefully in a good way, out of some more modern assumptions about women and laughter. Um, could you talk more about that?
0: Yeah, I was really struck by reading a 19th century newspaper. And this was sort of toward the end of the 19th century. And it was saying, oh, well, here are some jokes by by women, and they are good jokes. Um, and they." it said something like, they They belie the old theory that women have no sense of humor, and I thought, old, huh? Well, <laughs> well, wait a minute, how old is this really? It did not exist in any of my early modern sources. Nobody that I saw anywhere said that women lack a sense of humor. now they didn't talk about sense of humor, and uh, we should say that. The term sense of humor is one that only comes to general use in the 19th century. But nobody thought women weren't as good at getting you to laugh. Um, Certainly nobody thought they would laugh less. They all thought they laughed more. So something between the 18th century, where we have Thrail and um, she's got... It's interesting. She's got women who are being funny and she quotes some of the women who are funny, but she doesn't rate the women on their wit, humor and good humor quite in the same way that she does the men. She rates their good humor um, and their conversation, but she isn't demanding the same kind of performance from women, even though she was known for being witty herself and she Um, you know, quoted some of her own uh, little witticisms. So, but um, I see a connection between this kind of performance-based idea of laughter that is growing up by the 18th century and ideas of female decorum that said, you know, you don't want to be putting yourself out in the market with, um, you know, an exchangeable performance. Um, that, and also a new valuing of the sense of humor that led men in the 19th century to start to think, no, women don't have this. Um, and then, and then the Freudians took it up and said, oh yeah, well, women don't need humor because their psychic development is so much simpler than men's. So so men need, need this, you know, kind of complex, complex way of dealing with the world and women, they just kind of sail through. Um, so, uh. It's pretty interesting, a brand new gender stereotype being invented, i think
1: yeah well it's uh it gives me lots to think about um and perhaps new ammo uh in arguments about whether or not women can be funny today uh well, Joy, it's been so lovely talking with you. Uh, a final question before we sign off: uh, Has your work on laughing histories led you in new directions for future research? I know you only just finished, so yes, uh, that's right. If you want to take a little exhale, that's fine. But uh um, oh, yeah. what's on the horizon for you these days?
0: Yeah, yes. Well, I am breathing a little, um, but I'm working on a couple of things going in the direction of sociability and happiness, and I'm, I'm. Uh, writing some short pieces on these things to kind of see what may draw me into, um, see where those things lead and and um, what more is to be found there.
1: Well, enjoy your, your break and enjoy exploring new opportunities. Uh, I look forward to hearing about whatever you uh, come to next. Um, and thank you again so much for being on the show today. Uh, oh, such a thank- pleasure.
0: Yes, thank you. It's been a great pleasure talking with you. So thanks very much. Of
1: course. Uh, And to our audience, uh, thank you for tuning in to this discussion of Laughing Histories from the Renaissance Man to the Woman of Wit by Joy Wiltenberg uh, out as of last month. So be sure to pick up a copy. I've been your host, Elspeth Curry, and you've been listening to new books in early modern history. Take care.